There's already a large body of proposed amendments for consideration once a convention of states becomes a reality. But how do we sort through these? How do we distinguish the good proposals from the bad? That will be our topic today in the Free to be Free podcast. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. Now, before we jump into a discussion of specific proposed amendments, it's important to note that the Convention of States project as an organization does not support any specific amendment proposals. What the organization does support is the holding of a Convention of States for proposing amendments. The decision on which amendments to propose will happen after we have the convention And it's important to focus on first things first, which of course is getting to that magic number of 34 states applying for a convention of states. Now having said that, I have to admit, I've met many people in the convention of states organization, and you can have some great conversations with them on their ideas for proposed amendments and what is a favorite for them. But again, the organization as a whole does not have a list or any uh, amendments specifically that are supported. What the Convention of States project supports is an Article 5 Convention of the States for proposing amendments in three subject areas. First is to place fiscal restraints on the federal government. Second is to limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. And third is to consider term limits for federal officials. Any amendments that fall within that area, the Convention of States project believes are worthy of discussion and consideration at a Convention of States. Okay, with that disclaimer, uh, let me first say that there are a number of sources you can find for proposed amendments for consideration. Uh, Some that I'm aware of are Mark Levin's book, The Liberty Amendments. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has published his Texas plan, which contains a number of proposed amendments. Uh, Constitutional lawyer Randy Barnett has a book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, uh, which in the the, uh, appendix of the book or the back of the book has some proposed amendments. Uh, The Convention of States Project has held a simulated convention, the purpose of which was to prove the concept of the operation of a convention of states. The uh, proposed amendments that came out of the simulation were a byproduct or a secondary uh, product of the simulation. But nonetheless, they came up with six proposed amendments. And then finally, my favorite source for proposed amendments, uh, my personal favorite, are state constitutions. And I will provide links to most of these in the show notes if you're interested in digging a little deeper. And what I'd like to propose here is my personal list of five criteria for evaluating proposed amendments. 
Now let's go through the list of criteria before we talk about them in detail. First is a proposed amendment must be germane to the application which the states have submitted. Second, a good proposed amendment would be brief. Third, it would favor structure over substance, and we'll talk about that in more detail in a moment. Fourth, an amendment should avoid expansive language. Again, we'll talk about that in more detail in a moment. And last but not least, number five, I believe it's important that a proposed amendment would be something with which we have real-world experience. Okay, so let's jump into the first one, that a proposed amendment must be germane to the application. And as I've already mentioned, the Convention of States application limits the convention to amendments that place fiscal restraints on the federal government, that limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and establish term limits for federal officials. So, any proposed amendment must fit within those parameters. So, let's take an example. Suppose we're at the convention, and one of the commissioners stands up and says, I propose that we repeal the First Amendment. Well, let's take that through the germane test here. Does that have to do with placing fiscal restraints on the federal government? No. Does that have to do with limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government? No. Does that have to do with establishing term limits? And of course not. So that type of amendment proposal would fail the germane test. Now our second criteria is brevity. And this is pretty obvious if you read the Constitution that most of the articles in the Constitution and amendments are brief. They're, they're short, they're plain language, they're easy to understand, and we should follow through with this tradition with any proposed amendments. Let me give you an example of a proposed amendment that comes from a state constitution that fits this criteria, and it would read like this. All bills will be limited to a single subject clearly stated in the title. How does that sound to you? That's short, plain language, easy to understand, and it sure would go a long way in reducing the kind of bills we're used to that has everything, including the kitchen sink, thrown in. Now the third criteria I have is favoring structure over substance. And this is a little bit more complex of a criteria. So substance deals with what can be done, what an amendment may describe that the federal government is allowed to do. And structure, on the other hand, deals with how it can be done, the procedure for doing such a thing. Now maybe this will become a little more clear uh, when I give you an example. And the example I'm going to use is a couple of different versions of proposals for balanced budget amendments. One proposal, I'm paraphrasing here, but would have the proposed amendment sound something like this. That they require all expenditures do not exceed receipts except in emergency circumstances. Now that's an example of a proposed amendment that focuses on substance. What the substance is saying is the government can't spend more than it takes in with this exception of emergency circumstances. 
Now, there, there are some problems with this in that, first of all, what, what's an emergency circumstance and who gets to decide and who declares it? All of this kind of thing. It's a, it's a little fuzzy. And then secondly, what happens if Congress violates this amendment? If they do spend more than they take in, how does it get enforced? Does somebody have to file a lawsuit? And does that take years to resolve? And perhaps even a new Congress is elected. So that's, those are some of the weaknesses of a substance-based type of amendment. Now, let me give you an alternative proposal for a balanced budget amendment. Uh, and this one comes uh, from the Convention of State Simulation. And it requires a two-thirds record, two recorded vote in both the House and the Senate to increase the national debt and only for one year. So this is a structural amendment. Instead of saying that Congress cannot spend more than it takes in, it sets some criteria for what it must do in order to spend more than it takes in. And requiring that two-thirds recorded vote is an answer to that except in case of an emergency in the first uh, example that I gave you. So that's a structural thing. And structural uh, amendments or structural clauses like this tend to be self-enforcing. So the self-enforcing part is two-thirds of both the House and the Senate would have to agree it's enough of an unusual or emergency circumstance to spend more, but then it's constrained by this can only happen for one year and they'd have to revote. And that is more likely to have more strength and more power than simply saying you can't spend more than you take in and then having to rely on some litigation and all of that kind of stuff to enforce it if it's violated. So I hope that kind of makes sense. I'm not saying that amendments based on substance are bad. We have a lot of those. Um, but when possible, crafting the amendment to rely more on structure is going to make it a much stronger amendment. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Avoid expansive language. And this is a problem we've had throughout our history is that uh, language in the Constitution ends up being expanded by the courts to mean more than what it really did initially. So in drafting amendments and proposing them, we should keep that in mind and avoid language which could be interpreted to create new federal powers. And let me give an example of this. There, there's a proposal that there could be an amendment that prohibits unfunded mandates from the federal government imposed upon state governments. And, and of course, this makes sense. This is something I personally would support. But let's think this through. If you had language that said the federal government cannot impose unfunded mandates on the states, isn't there an implication that funded mandates are okay? meaning that the federal government has unlimited power to mandate whatever the states should do as long as the federal government funds it. I hope that kind of makes sense how that language could be expansive. Um, there, are, there are some proposed amendments, for example, 
that would put a limit on taxation. Uh, for example, say the federal government cannot tax more than 15% of a person's income. Well, first of all, if that were the limit, guess what the, the tax rate would be? Of course, it would be 15%. But what that language tends to do is affirm or say that the federal government has the authority to tax income when uh, that could be in dispute or, or there are some who want to eliminate the income tax. But if you have an amendment in the Constitution that states the federal government can tax up to 15% of a person's income, it establishes that an income tax is something we're going to have forever. Now let's move on to the final criteria that I have for evaluating proposed amendments, and that is uh, it would be wise that any proposed amendments cover subject matter or things that we have real-world experience with. And to me, that, that would fall into two categories. One would be state constitutions. Uh, there are a number of uh, amendments or articles in state constitutions that impose restrictions on the state governments that we should, should certainly discuss or, or are worthy of discussion at a convention of states for applying to the federal government. One example is balanced budget amendment. I believe it's all but four states have some type of balanced budget requirement. So at a convention of states, if we're coming together and, and debating the, the worthiness of a balanced budget requirement for the federal government, this will be debated by state legislators, most likely who are the commissioners to the convention, and they have real-world experience with a balanced budget. And not just in seeing how it works in their states, but that type of thing would have perhaps been litigated and we see how courts would treat it. So it, it gives us a good basis for a real-world discussion of the pros and cons of that type of amendment. Uh, another example might be the, the amendment I used when I talked about brevity, that all bills will be limited to a single subject clearly stated in the title. So there are states, that in fact comes from my own state, from Indiana's constitution. So there could be a, a valid discussion at the convention of what does that do and how does that affect the legislative process. So it's, it's not just theoretical in discussion, but practical. And we have experience uh, to back up whether we should propose something like that or not. Another great example are term limits, which is clearly uh, germane and something we'd like to discuss at the uh, Convention of States. And I believe there are currently around 15 states that have term limits uh, for their representatives. And there's, there's varying experience. Um, some people think it's positive experience. Some have seen negative. Um, so my, my point is not whether that's good or bad, but at a convention of states, there can be a discussion and exchange of ideas from states that have implemented it. They can talk about what has worked and what hasn't to help craft a, perhaps a very strong amendment proposal uh, for the federal government. The other area in which we can consider real-world experience with proposed amendments would involve the repeal of existing amendments because repealing an existing amendment simply returns us to a state we were in in the past 
and we have history as our example and some real-world experience. Let me use an example there. There are many proponents of repealing the 17th Amendment. Now, what the 17th Amendment did was established popular election of federal senators. Uh, prior to the 17th Amendment, enacted in 1913, senators were chosen by the state legislatures. It was a, a belief that the Senate would then represent the interests of the states and the House of Representatives would represent the interests of the people in the federal government. And that provided for some balance of power and some checks and balances and that kind of thing. Well, as I said, in 1913, that was changed and senators are now elected through popular election by the people. So, at a convention of states, if there's a discussion over a repeal of the 17th, we obviously have history as an example, and we can bring in that real-world experience to decide should we propose repealing the 17th or not, because we do have real-world experience with that. So with that, you have my five criteria for evaluating proposed amendments. And let me review those again. They're number one, the amendment must be germane to the application for the Convention of States. Second, the amendment should be brief using plain language that's easily understood. Third, it's best if an amendment favors structure over substance. Fourth, a proposed amendment should avoid expansive language, language that could be interpreted to expand powers that weren't intended. And finally, and, and I feel one of the most important, is the proposed amendment should address an area in which we have real-world experience, either in history in the federal government or through state governments, because after all, they are our laboratories of uh, liberty where we can take experiences from the states and apply those to the federal government. So in closing today's episode, I would encourage you to take a look at some of the sources of proposed amendments that I've mentioned here and uh, take a look in the show notes and you'll find links to some of those and think through some of those proposals and these criterias that I've uh, presented here. Perhaps you can come up with some other criteria as well. And if that's the case, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to uh, enter in the comment sections any of your input. Thanks for listening to the Free to Be Free podcast. This is the Free to Be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed in this podcast are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. The most important thing that you can do at conventionofstates.com is to study and learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition. This will let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends. 